Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome again to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella, and I'm Editorial Director of Small Business Digest. We come to you through three media channels, here at Blog Talk Radio, through our online newsletters, and via our magazine. They are now all available to you at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Each month, we touch more than one million small business leaders through our various channels. Each hour here at Small Business Digest Radio, we hope to bring you information, strategies, and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. In short, helping small business leaders add uh, greater profits. Our guests are carefully chosen for their expertise or experience. They do not pay to be on this program, but rather our editors and readers identify them. If you have any suggestions or particular topics you want us to cover, please email us at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. Tonight's program, like all our efforts, have a wide diversity of guests talking about the topics you want to hear. But but the emphasis emphasis of this week will be on really uh, helping small business managers get through the last four months. Our first guest is Jamie Gertson. Uh, Jamie, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm fine. Uh, It's been an interesting day today uh, in more ways than one. But, Jamie, uh, as we do with all our guests, tell us a little bit about your background, your personal background. Sure. Uh, you know, born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I, went, I attended Boston University on an athletic scholarship for rowing, graduated, uh, and ended up going to work for a technology startup that uh, was part of the dot-com craze in the late 90s. Uh, we ended up going public, and uh, after we went public, I actually moved back to Cincinnati and left that company about three years after Republic because I just realized that working for a public company wasn't really as entrepreneurial as I wanted it to. And my family had been in the traditional uh, heating and air conditioning business since 19, in the 1930s. Um, came back and worked as a sales guy uh, at that company and then went on to buy that company from my dad uh, years later. Um, so I've got two kids, uh, two boys, an 8- and 10-year-old um, that live in, uh, in Cincinnati and um, you know, still work in the business every day. Well, and and now, tell us about your book. So the book that I wrote, um, Squirrels, Boats, and Thoroughbreds, was really um, wait. You know, kind say of, it again. Had, say it sure. again slowly. Sure. Squirrels, boats, and thoroughbreds, uh, and and it's really you know about how do you lead uh, change in a traditional business. And it really came out of my, you know, plus or minus 10 years of experience in the traditional space that I've been in um, and really trying to tr- figure out, okay, what, what, are the, what are the levers that really drive a traditional business? One of the things that I realized when I started to think about writing a book was, you know, you hear a lot of talk around a startup space, you know, sort of the greatest next technology. You hear a lot of talk around the Fortune 2000, but, you know, 96% of businesses in the U.S. are about a million dollars 
or less in revenue and, quite frankly, are, are somewhat underserved in terms of how do they grow those businesses. And so the book was really written as a way to help everybody sort of in a traditional space and just normal business every day. Um, how do you grow? How do you create jobs? Um, how do you increase not only top line but, but as well as sort of gross margin and your profitability? Um, because at the end of the day, revenue is vanity, profit is vanity, and cash is king. Well, um, we've had several uh, uh, p- people on the show in the last uh, a month or so, uh, and everybody uh, uh, drives to uh, drives their company to grow. What are the three key elements you think to growth in a small company? Well, you know, I think first is this theory that I talk about, which is what I call push pull. And, you know, that really came out of my experience in rowing. And I'll give you the backstory on it. So, you know, the fastest rowing shells or the fastest rowing boats I was ever part of, the fastest teams, it was a lot easier to go faster uh, in those boats because we all knew how to pull together, right? But you had to make this leap of faith, quite frankly, between pushing yourself and really just sort of struggling through it to know that, you know, if I relax a little bit, I count on the people around me, I can pull and I can actually go faster, what I found in the business is that as soon as, you know, I figured out how to switch from, you know, I could, when we had 20 employees, I could push them all pretty hard, right? I was really intimate with them. I knew who they were. I knew their families. But as we grew and we got larger, it became harder and harder to influence. And so you almost had, I almost had to let go to the point where I would empower those around me to take on more and more and more responsibility. But some of the challenges that I started to see when I started to think about writing this book is, talking to business owners is they had a really hard time with believing somebody else could do it actually better than them, right? Somebody else could actually drive the business better than they could who might be in a better position to help grow it. And so that's sort of how this idea came about, this idea of push-pull theory. Okay, that, that's one. But but now, um, I'm a small business. Uh, I, I know this. I, I know that... Uh, what I should do, but how do I do it? How do you do it, grow a business? Well, you know, in looking back, I mean, the old paradigm paradigm of, you know, it's about really hiring, trying to hire the best possible people you can. The the challenge is, is nobody really talks about, quite frankly, how to attract people to business. They assume and they say to you, well, let's go out and let's go hire better people. But how do you know your business is really attractive? That's the first question, right? So you have to start – I started personally started thinking about, okay, how do you, how do you make your, your business the place to work? And you have to create an attractive backdrop for that. Um, the second thing I think more importantly is you have to know that just – you can't have all – what I, you know, I say in the book, all thoroughbreds, right? You have to have a nice even mix. And part of that even mix, again, comes from are you setting up your business to be attractive for people who actually want to work there? Because business owners, I think, at times think that the business they have is the most attractive place to work, but the problem is is they don't really understand that they're competing not against the other small business owners, but they're competing against the GEs and the Googles of the world. And so how do you attract top-tier talent to your company? Well, you know, that's that's interesting because um, uh, many – is that you? Uh No. No. Uh, it must be Blog Talk Radio. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I guess the question, you say many small businesses 
business leaders think that uh, their business by and of itself attracts. But um, how do you how do you attract really top talent and keep them in your view? You know, in my view, it's about again it goes back to I think you know this is not new. There's nothing groundbreaking about it. But you've got to really empower and give really good people want to run a business within a business. So the question is, can you design your business to have businesses within a business? So you set up business units that have full P&L responsibility. You set up business units that give them real budgets that they get to spend based on what they need to do to hit their numbers or hit the track record or the scorecard that you produce for them. And then you got to get out of the way and let them go do it. Um, a lot of times what I see... And, you know, the way I used to run the business was, you know, I was more in the control side. And what I found is that the less control I had, the faster the business grew. Now, that doesn't mean to give full control away, but it means that, you know, I think a CEO's job in a small business is um, is really to empower, and when I say empower, is to step away and get, and, you know, get them to help you pull the business to the next level instead of pushing the people around you. And that's a tr- really tough transition for people. Uh, you, you're, you're, very, you're very accurate on that. I mean, uh, well, forget small business uh, in large corporations, managers who can't uh, let their people do their jobs uh, can sometimes sabotage the whole operation. But uh, in, in your opinion, okay, uh, attracting the uh, people – but what what else is is key to growing a business? You know, I think it's a lot of question around. You know, I talk about visioning too. Okay, and so I think that the reality is, I I wonder often about you know when you think about individuals at a at a leadership role in a small business, how do they really think about leadership? So I think there are sort of four specifics to leadership. I think, and I think this is very much in tune with how businesses grow. So, you know, I look at when I talk to a business leader or talk to a business owner, the, what I want to know is, you know, what's, tell me about your personal, family, business, and community. What are the four leadership quadrants and how do you actually operate in all four of those? What typically you'll find is that the biggest, and it's not necessarily a new different concept, but, again, in traditional business, the one thing that I think gets overlooked a lot is usually the challenge to growing the business is the actual owner, Okay. And, you know, as an example, today I, we were in this, I was in a meeting with four other business owners, and we were talking about growth. And one guy continued to talk about the market and the challenges he had in the market. Another one talked about supplier issues. Um, but not once did they, and they talked about how they were handling those problems. And my real question to them was, why don't you have a team that's helping you solve those problems and why are you solving them alone? And I, I really question a lot of times when we look at this stuff is what what kind of leadership are you throwing back at your organization? What kind of empowerment are you doing? And if you have people coming to you and you're trying to solve their problems that work for you, that might not be that you have the right people. But it seems like anymore, to me, there's sort of the owner that wants to solve everybody's problems, and then there's the owner who coaches, counsels, and mentors and, and sits back and asks way more questions and doesn't give a whole lot of answers. Um, and I think that's the the growth. Because if you're the guy in the room who's always answering the question, that might not be the greatest strategy in the long run. But but there are small business leaders who have to be uh, who who have to be uh, the best in the room and the and the solver of all problems. 
How do you get to that person, or do you not get to such a person? You show them. Well, I think that's a good question, and I think it's a tough question to answer. I think um, there are some people that believe that their way is the best way, and those, in my opinion, uh, and from my experience, is that the strongest leaders I've seen with consistent growth year over year who have holistic happiness throughout their life that includes not only their business but themselves, their family, and their community are the ones who can actually sit back and let people start to solve problems and challenges and help allow people to help them grow that business. I see a lot of people, not a lot, but you do see people that want to be that guy who always answers the question. And my my thing would be is I've I've never met somebody who has all the answers yet. So the real question is how often can they step away from it and get out of the way? And I'm not so sure there are a lot of business leaders that can't do it, and hence why small business maybe stays small. You know, if you look at the statistics, it's very hard to get a business from a million to ten million dollars. It seems to be a magic plateau, and you got to ask the question of why is that? And I think it comes back to the guy or the person who's driving the bus, if they're driving it so hard that they're ignoring the talent around them, that's not a very attractive place to be, right? If you're a a young executive in one of those companies, are you going to want to stick around? I'm not sure. Um, But I would probably say no. In in my experience, uh, uh, executives or or owners like that usually have second-rate staffs who, for one reason or another, can't break away. Uh, that's been my experience. Um, what do you th- What do you think uh, happens to the staff of someone like that? Well, I think what's interesting is I think it's it's pretty self evident. I think that when you it's like when you walk into one of those companies, you can smell it. You know, you can tell where the only way, in my opinion, to get growth in a company is you have to have innovation. And the only way to get innovation is you have to let let that happen in terms of promoting an environment that actually appreciates it and rewards it. And part of innovation comes from failure. You can't innovate a company unless you fail. You've got to fail somewhere along the line because then you realize, hey, we've got to create this thing. Well, the problem with that thing you want to create is typically one person can't change the direction of an organization, um, I think, effectively. They can, but they're never going to continue to grow it. Does that make sense? So from a, it's almost paradoxical in a way, right? A lot of people would say, so if I let go, I'm going to grow. Yeah, that's correct. Well, you, you know, um, you're absolutely right. Um, in, in a recent Wall Street Journal article, they were pointing out that Nikoya and Microsoft were the top of the heat just uh, seven years ago. And yet today they're also rents in their industry, and everybody talks about their uh, their lack of uh, innovation from within. Um, so what you just said is very very uh, res- resonated very greatly with me. But um, well, I, I, your thoughts? Well, I think what's interesting is if you look at Microsoft or Nokia, one of the things is I think. Let's talk about Microsoft as an example, okay? So you've had, you've had the same guy run that business for a long time, right? So Steve Ballmer runs that business. But as he's running that business, they stay on a traditional platform, right? And that traditional platform, um, you have an innovation happening all around them and it happening at a very fast click. 
the challenge with businesses is that if you, you don't empower people around you to actually innovate and you create so much process and so much bureaucracy between trying to serve your end user, which is the customer, and being customer-centric in your organization, what ends up happening is you stifle any innovation and you don't attract people who have the energy to do it. So it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So my experience has been that you have to have almost an open source platform or a platform in an organization that actually rewards people for taking risk. You know? And yeah. you don't have meetings where you sit in a meeting and you berate a guy because he didn't hit his numbers because he made he he guessed, right? He made an educated yeah. guess based on all the factors and he made a mistake. And he didn't hit numbers. You don't berate that guy, you reward him and you say Hey, you know, you chat, you tried. This was a bet you made, and what did you learn? Share with the group what you learned, and that to me is what I consider to be um, sort of the leader of the future for small business. It's a guy who can ask questions and not answer very much, because people don't need you to give them answers. They need you to continue to help them ask the right questions. Well, I, I agree with you. Um, uh, sometimes, like Microsoft, focus so much on its prime uh, on its uh, primary products, it's um, uh, uh, that maybe uh, it, uh, it lost its way in um, uh, lost its way in, in terms of in, innovation. That happens to all big companies. Um, the name of your book again? My name, of my book is Squirrels, Boats, and Thoroughbreds. Lessons for Leading Change in Traditional Businesses. Okay, and where can our, 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 our listeners get get your book? You know, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's available um, on Amazon. You can do uh, like ebook, or you can actually buy a paperback or a hard copy. You can also look at my website, which is Jamie J A M I E Gerson G E R D S E N dot com. Well, Jamie, thank you uh, for what I found an interesting program. Will be uh, uh, so far a great program and certainly an interesting topic. We'll be back uh, with our next guest after this message. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit cost. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com. Welcome back. My name is Donald Mazzella. This is Small Business Digest Radio. Uh, we're here again this week with you. And our next guest is Christopher Gerwood, who has the idea people should buy their goods from small businesses trying to recover in the disaster areas. When I heard about him, I had to have him on the program. Christopher, are you there? I'm here. Thank you so much, Don. Well, no, thank you. Uh, Chris, we always ask our guests, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Uh, born and raised just outside of Detroit. Uh, attended Michigan State University and the University of Michigan. In 2008, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I worked for a nonprofit. In 2010, uh, we were given 
are awarded a one and a half two million dollar grant to do some work down in New Orleans right after the oil spill. And uh, what the Obama administration did at the time was really quite brilliant. Uh, they tasked us to find all of the individuals that recovered from the Northridge earthquake in California or the folks who recovered from the flood in Iowa and fly them down to New Orleans. So it was chamber CEO speaking to chamber CEO. It was city manager talking to city manager. And those conversations um, I sat in and I learned one thing from small business owners that I'll never forget. And that's when we asked the small business owner what they needed after a disaster. They said they needed customers because their sales had dropped dramatically after a catastrophic event. So we designed this solution called Recovery Plex to answer that problem. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Okay, we'll keep going. So now, so now you, you're there, you've got a solution, and now is this the program that you're doing right now? Right. So the name of our startup company is called Recovery Pledge, and you can find us at recoverypledge.com. And here's the way the business model works. So before a disaster happens, what we want to do is gather product and service information, a nice glossy photo and a biography of the business owner and what they sell. And we want to load that into our e-commerce database. And so in the event of a disaster, we're ready to go. We can turn the e-commerce platform on, and the business can sell what we call recovery pledges. So let me give you an example, Don. Instead of buying that kitchen table you need from a local big box retailer, we want you to buy it from a small business in New Orleans right after a hurricane. And what you've done is you've redirected your consumption patterns to the area, to the community, to the city that needs it most. And in doing so, you stabilize the sales of a small business, and thereby you'll stabilize the community because small businesses are the economic engines of cities. Well, now that's fascinating. Now let's let's delve a little bit into this model, if I may. Uh, uh, are you going around asking uh, small businesses across the country to co come into your database, and, and then if something happens, uh, um, somehow or other, pop up that region? How does it work? Exactly, that's a great question. So. Right now, we're trying to raise around 37500 to build the platform to fit our needs. So not only is Recovery Pledge an e-commerce platform, but it's also a data repository, meaning we want to measure how I, a Los Angeles resident, purchased the goods and services I needed from a small business, let's say, in a disaster area. And we want to measure that redirection of consumption and then measure how that redirection of consumption reduced the time it took for a city to recover from a disaster. So we want to be uh, very focused on measuring the disaster recovery process, in addition to being this e-commerce platform that can facilitate disaster recovery. So uh, we took this idea to a crowdfunding platform called Indiegogo, and we've raised about 20% of the 37500 we need and we have about 20 days to raise the rest to hopefully build this uh, post-disaster economic recovery platform. Well, uh, so you, if you raise the thirty-seven thousand, you're going to put up a platform. But but how right, how, gonna, how will 
Go ahead. Yeah, so the platform will work, just as you said. Folks from all around the country will be able to load uh, profile pages. Uh, business owners will be able to submit biographies and photos of the products and services. Let's say, um, for an example, let's say it's an artisan carpenter who builds handmade kitchen tables, um, but they're located in a disaster area. We want this artisan carpenter to load up pictures of the tables they build, a profile page of themselves in a nice photo. And then in the event of, let's say, a flooding, what we do is we flick a switch and we turn this e-commerce platform on, right? But we only turn it on for maybe three to six months because we turn it on just to stabilize the sales of a small business until they recover, and then we turn the platform off again. Well, now that's that's well. I think it's clever and certainly interesting. So now you're you're raising funds uh, through what platform again? The crowdfunding platform we chose is Indiegogo. It's based in San Francisco. And you're twenty percent of the way there. That's uh, right. But you, uh, what will uh, if someone usually with this program they're promised something. Uh, in return for the funding. What do what you promise? Right. So what we want to do is flip the model from B to C to C to B. Right. Our tagline is where consumers take the lead in disaster recovery. So uh, part of the perk structure we have at Indiegogo is you as a consumer can buy your favorite small business a membership to Recovery Pledge. And so in the event of a disaster, you can be the first one to support them through the disaster by purchasing the products and services that they sell on a daily basis. It sounds fascinating. Uh, how are you, in the meantime, uh, uh, the natural question, how are you supporting your, yourself and how many people are in the group with you? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, uh, I'm working full-time. This is uh, this is nights and weekends. Um, and my wife, Marta, she manages all of the branding and social media. So if you visit us on recoverypledge.com, you'll see all of her work. And my younger brother is a software engineer in Silicon Valley, and he's helping with the back-end work. So so you're really bootstrapping it. Yeah, we're a small business trying to help small businesses. All right. One more time before uh, we go to our next guest. Uh, Indigo, uh, and and the name of your project again? Yeah, if if folks really like this idea, uh, you can find us at recoverypledge.com, and uh, there you'll see links that say support us on Indiegogo, and you'll be able to access uh, all of our business plan, a full press kit, and any other information you need, you can just contact me there. Well, we, uh, we wish you good luck because uh, we invited you on this program because thought, we thought it was a great idea. One of my editors really twisted my arm on it. So thank you. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, Don. All right. Uh, after this brief bre uh, break, we have our, our next guest. Just how dangerous is social networking? Use of websites like Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube are all the rage. But what are the downsides of this new technology? The incidence of bullying, 
stalking, harassment, and inappropriate content are increasing. Just how dangerous is it? What can you do to protect your child and yourself from it? Go to protectivecountermeasures.com for a free hour-long video on the dangers of social networking. That's protectivecountermeasures.com for your free hour-long video. Welcome back. This is Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Donald Mazzella. We, our, our program moves along tonight on a variety of topics. Our next guest is Marshall Gibbs, who's the Chief Technology and Operations Officer for Target Data. We, uh, uh, we invited him on the program because uh, we believe even the smallest company, as he does, can, uh, can use data to drive additional sales and profits. Mar Marshall, welcome to the program. Thank you, Don. It's a pleasure to be here tonight. Well, we got a little bit of a uh, background noise in, 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 uh, coming through, but um, I'm, I'm asking my engineer if he's hearing it as well. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll try to muddy through. It's, uh, it's probably an echo or something. Marshall, we always ask our our guests first a little bit about themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Certainly, Don. Uh, I've been a career CTO technologist uh, and uh, have had uh, headed up uh, large and small technology organizations throughout my career, mostly focusing on transformative technologies, especially in big data and in analytics. I started out with uh, Pricewaterhouse. I spent time working for an old line industry for the railroad for CSX, moved on to a couple of startup companies, and then uh, actually the nice folks in Information Resources brought me to Chicago, where I ran technology for a number of years for them and then uh, ended up finding the advertising world kind of interesting. So I went to work for one of Omnicom's agencies, uh, Target, uh, Target Base, and then uh, after I left them, and uh, we, I helped uh, launch a company called Target Data here in Chicago that focuses on helping organizations who want to market to people who are in the process of moving. Okay, tell us a little bit more. It goes right into the subject. Who are in the process of moving? Correct. Did I hit? Correct. So, uh, interesting, interesting niche opportunity. So, every year, uh, you know, uh, today by most estimates, around eight to nine percent of the U.S. population goes through a relocation, and it turns out that when folks move, uh, there are a whole lot of decisions that have to be made, and, and there are a number of estimates around this. But most folks would tell you that in the three months either side of a move, so six months in total most uh, people will spend more money during that period of time and make more brand decisions than they will in the subsequent three years that they live in their new home. When people move, it's a, it's a huge upheaval, and they have to reevaluate everything from their insurance to their cable provider to their banking relationships. They even make changes in their brand affiliations for things like toilet paper, grocery stores, and uh, the sodas that they drink. So a lot is on the table during that time, and for companies to be able to reach people during that time and influence them is really important. Our company figured out how to find all of those people who are in the process of moving and make them available to companies to market to. Well, now that's fascinating. Um, uh, now, uh, let's bring it down to our audience of small business leaders. 
does how does this work for them, and uh, how can you help them? Most of our clients are actually, in fact, small businesses. Most of our clients are either in the uh, mover space or in other associated industries like mortgage brokers and so forth who deal with customers. And so for small businesses, a couple of things tend to hold true. One, you need to figure out for your, uh, for your business, who is it that you need to target? Who are the people that you want to sell your products to? And second, when do you want to talk to them and how can I most cost-effectively reach that audience? So for a number of our, our customers, um, you know, we have people who have, you know, put the proverbial sign in the front yard. They have raised their hand and said, I'm going to move. So one, target, hugely identified and well understood. And then two, we know when they put their sign in the front yard, we know how long it's been there, we know how the market is doing. And so we help our clients understand the best time to talk to their, to their, the, to this constituency, to these people who are about to move. We spend well, time with our clients. Go ahead, Doc. Uh, let me stop you right there, because this is fascinating. Um, what do you mean the best time to talk to to uh, these these potential clients? I mean, is there a different time for different products? There absolutely is. So we are a very data-driven company, and I find that most small businesses have tremendous amounts of data, and if they have a little bit of help figuring out how to understand that data, um, they can make big strides in how to effectively market. And so in this case, often with our clients, we use their sales data, their, the data that they have, their sales data, and we match it up to the people who have moved, and we can understand and show them, hey, these people make their decision about your product category uh, at about this point during the move window. So it's important to talk to them uh, either right at the beginning of the move, right in the middle, or near the end of the time when they're getting ready to sell their house. And then okay, further, we help them understand. Go ahead. Can you give us an example? Bring it down to an uh, uh, example. Uh, for instance, uh, 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 selling a television, or when's the best time to be selling them new appliances? Uh, can you give us an example that uh, perhaps better than the one I asked? <laughs> Certainly. There's a couple of good examples. Let's take you started to go down the path of televisions or appliances or even something really simple like furniture because that's an interesting one. Most people would tell you that if somebody's moving, uh, and we've had this conversation with a number of clients, from a furniture perspective, nobody buys furniture until they get to their new location. Well, the truth is when you look at their actual data, people buy furniture at two times during their move. They buy it typically to do staging. So right when they list their house, either before or as they're listing their house, they'll replace shoddy looking furniture because they want the home to look better. And then the second time that they'll buy frequently is within 30 days to 45 days of actually moving because no one wants to move into a new house that's empty. So they'll go ahead and start making those purchase decisions knowing that they're gonna have their furniture delivered to the new house on the backside. Well, that that's fascinating. But you also said they change brands uh, uh, and, and stores. Um, when do they do that? After they arrive or before they arrive? Uh, a little let's bit of say both. A little bit of both. In today's world, most people have some idea of the direction that they're headed. And again, the old rule holds. So 75 to 80% of people move within the zip code or within a zip code's radius around them. They, they tend to not move terribly far. Uh, 
but all people are really curious about the neighborhood that they're moving into. So they begin looking early to make a number of decisions. What bank do I want to be a part of? They have to talk to their insurance agent. Great time to figure out whether or not I want to stick with these insurance, you know, this insurance company or change insurance companies. Um, they have to reevaluate typically their cable or, or satellite TV, whatever their telecommunications provider is. And as they kind of go down the list and they think about it, it's usually uh, fairly early in the move cycle they begin evaluating those decisions and they make most of them before they actually move. Wow. Um, I'm a small business. Um, how do I um, access your data or access your expertise to help me um, uh, uh, earn additional sales? I mean, how does it work? I, uh, I come to you and say I, I, uh, I want to know every uh, the person who's going to move into my uh, sales f footprint the next three months. How does it work? You know, as a small business, there's a couple of questions that typically are being asked. You have two real opportunities, and they, you know, everybody has them. It's retention and acquisition. So first, you're a small business. Wouldn't you want to know everybody who's putting their home up for sale? And you're, that's already an existing customer of yours. Wouldn't you want to know who in your customer base has listed their home for sale? You know, is there is there an opportunity for you to maintain a relationship with that person as they transition to the next phase of their life? Or is there an opportunity for you to talk to that household once it changes hands into a new household so that you can establish a new relationship? And the second is on the acquisition side, what is your what is your proposition? What do you have? What are you selling? Um, and can you find all of the people who are your primary target for what it is that you're trying to sell, or at least a big chunk of what you're trying to sell to? And so on the acquisition side, we'll tell you everybody who's going to move. And so, for example, the easy one, if you are a mover, you're a, uh, uh, you've got a truck or you're a, a bigger move company, We'll tell you everybody in your region whose house is listed for sale and give you the opportunity to market to them both in direct marketing and in digital marketing so that you can get your message in front of people specifically who are going to sell. Very, very cost-effective marketing. Oh, and uh, people uh, want to reach you and reach your company. How do they do it? They can find us both online at uh, targetdatacorp.com. Uh, and they can call us directly at 312-508-4310. At, uh, at, uh, we're a Chicago-based company. We're a startup funded here in Chicago, and uh, we're open for business and willing to uh, love to engage with lots of clients. We have a very broad client base, and we have a great, uh, a great sales force. We'll reach right back out to you and try to figure out how we can help you out with your business. Well, I, I found it fascinating. I'm going to invite you back in a couple of months uh, see how you're doing as a startup. How's that? That'd be great. That'd be great, Tom. Oh. We'd like that. Okay. Thank you for coming on. Thank uh, you for having us. Well, our next guests, we're going to go directly to them because they've been waiting patiently. Are you there? If you're talking Hello? to us, we are. Good evening. Good evening. Okay. We've been having a very interesting time today, so that, that's why I, I wanted to make sure. Why don't you introduce yourselves? 
I know one's a guru and one's a marketing expert. <laughs> we'll let you decide which one's which. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At the end of 20 minutes, you can, you can decide which one's which. No, it's, um, uh, seriously, it's Peter Shankman, um, a social media guru, and Rachel Honig, who share the 10 things small businesses can do now to boost their customer service. That's why I wanted you on last, because I wanted as much time as possible to talk with you. So, I've introduced you. Now, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Sure. Um, well, we are both the principals of the aptly named Shankman Honig, uh, which is a recently formed customer service consultancy. What we are doing are working with brands, large and small, to help them enhance their customer service, such that the, the things that get shared um, among consumers about your brands are, are positive ones, and you're not running around chasing fires. Well, let's start with that. I had a very interesting experience uh, a couple of hours ago with a company that has spends ma- millions of dollars on their customer service and why you should choose them. Uh, uh, their rental car company and had one of the most horrible experiences uh, in a long time, and I've been a traveler for many years. So um, uh, uh, I'm very interested in how you can improve customer service because I, I will never go back to them again. Well, I think one of the key factors uh, to understand about customer service is that uh, the customer traditionally in this country over the past, say, 20 or 30 years has really created a very low bar and a very low expectation of what good customer service actually is. You know, the majority of uh, companies out there, we're just happy if they get our order right. You know, if we go to a, a fast food place and they, they get our order correct without any, mess, without any mistakes, if our dry cleaning is ready when, it, when they say you know, stupid little things like that that we ask for. And the problem is, is that we don't normally get that. Normally we get pretty bad customer service. You know, our, our order is screwed up. So the first thing we really do when we work with companies is we try to explain to them that, you know, what we're looking for are not these incredible magic moments that are going to completely redefine the world, but rather start off with being one level of what we expect. Now, now that is a fascinating statement, and, uh, and, and I really find that fascinating. Because uh, I seldom interject, but uh, I went through the Dallas airport um, Friday and uh, uh, wanted to bring uh, Texas barbecue home. And uh, I went to the Dickies there, and they did such an incredible job of of wrapping up the barbecue that um, at the end of my wife is still talking about it four days later. And you're sharing it. On your show, so obviously, and she told her friends, and if either of you are are social media media minded, you might have actually even done something like take a picture of that packaging um because every one of us is pretty much carrying around a camera in our pocket or our pocketbook these days, so you probably took a picture of that incredible packaging and sent it to anywhere from ten to ten thousand people, depending. And those people are all going to remember that the next time they go to Dallas and say, oh, there was that barbecue place that really took the time to make sure that the uh, pulled pork didn't leak in the, in the airport. 
And I'm sure, by the way, your passengers also appreciated that. <laughs> Very definitely. But now, um, in the interest of time, uh, uh, and, and you picked a topic, what are what are some idea, uh, ways of improving customer service? I think the first the first thing, and we work with businesses that are starting with established businesses. The first really look at the people that you're hiring. Start in the very, very So what is the psychology? What is the personality type? What are the types of people? If you want an environment that is going to provide levity and leave people smiling, then you have to hire employees who have a good temper. You might be a little bit funny. You have the ability to be a little bit or irreverent. Um, so you have to think about what kind of brand experience your customers with and hire them. That's the start. Because you can't only see them in And so building on this, one of the factors that you see a lot is to have uh, employees who are very, very good at what they do. They're very, very good at making the sandwich. They're very, very good at whatever the case may be. But they're good because they're trained to do that. They're not trained to think outside the box or to act on their own. You know, one of the, the stars of customer service that always has been, Ritz Carlton, you know, is very much, they train every single employee. First of all, they don't call them employees. They're called ladies and gentlemen. And they train every, every single lady and gentleman that works for them to be able to make their own decisions, fix the clients, fix the guests in real time. So if I complain about something, they, anyone who I talk to, from the busboy to the person who cleans my room, the general manager, has the ability to fix my problem, including spending money to make me satisfied. And their goal is to not let anyone leave their property who has not been completely satisfied. And it's that level of empowerment that companies can just take their employees, get their employees to understand, hey, you know what? Everything you do reflects on this company, and you can help improve the, the ability of this company to perform at higher levels, which in turn is also going to safeguard your job. I couldn't agree with you more, but why don't more companies do it? Because they're afraid it'll cost them too much money. Because they're, they have been lulled into a false sense that giving something, because we all know as consumers that very often when you have an issue, um, the best way to rectify it and the way you walk away most happy more often is if you've been compensated for that in some way. Um, maybe it's a free night, maybe it's free fries, maybe it's a free day on your rental car situation, right? But you want to feel in some way vindicated. And the the false paradigm of most companies and most management is that empowering the employee to give away X is going to cost them more money in the long run. It's actually exactly the opposite. Um, because the cost of both losing the customer, right, you just said you'll never go back to that rental car place again, um, and now you've got a, a marketing replacement cost of that customer in addition to a marketing cost of trying to grow your business. So one of the things we do is, you know, working with CMOs is they're spending a lot of time trying to get new customers, but they're forgetting about all the the ones that walk out the back door. So all they're doing is replacing. They're not really growing. And so there's a there's a false myth that it that it costs money when it's really quite the opposite. 
Well, um, uh, I, I, I find, and again, I'm throwing my personal experience, but uh, if I call up uh, a credit card company or anybody on an 800 number and I get someone from India, I immediately hang up um, because I know I'm not going to get the same level of service that I will uh, talking to someone in, in the United States. Um, if, am I be, just being uh, ornery, or is that something? And I uh, is that something that someone should consider with customer service? Well, the issue isn't so much where the customer service representative is. You're perfectly capable of getting the same level of customer service from a call center that's in Bombay than a call center that's in Buffalo. The difference is in the mentality of management that is empowering that call center employee to shred their script, listen to you as an individual, and be able to react and respond to your issue accordingly. And that's, to Peter's point, the issue that we were just talking about, about empowerment. So you can empower an Indian employee the same way you can empower an American um, it's just a, it's just a, men, it's a poor mentality of choice. And you know, there's, there's actually a follow-up on that. To give you an example, um, I, I often, I was a uh, traveling to the uh, Middle East. I was in Dubai, and before I left, I asked the rise to turn on global roaming on my phone, and I did, and they turned it on, and I, I landed Dubai, and within an hour, I find out that, I, that they've charged me over four hundred dollars already. So I call them, and they say, "Oh yeah, sorry, our global roaming doesn't work in Dubai." Well, it's not really global, then. That's kind of a problem. You know, I'm in Dubai for a week, and then I'm in London for the following week. What can you do to to just cut me a deal? How can I – I want to use this phone. What can I pay you? Come up with a good price that I can pay you, and, and I'll pay it. And they didn't the, – the employee did not have the power to make any kind of decision like that. So I simply went to the local electronics store, bought an unlocked phone, an unlocked SIM card, and didn't give Verizon a penny. I would have given Verizon three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 for those two weeks. Instead, they got nothing. So they lost money, and now I tell that story every chance I get. And if you actually – I wrote a blog post about the mistake, and if you Google Verizon roaming charges, my blog post about their negative actions come up before Verizon's page does. So, you know, what, what could have turned into a phenomenal win for them was a fail. And, I, and the issue thing, the person I talked to was in Indiana. So he was in Indiana in the United States, and he in a very nice American – uh, uh, Appalachian accent said, you know what, I'm sorry, I just don't have the power to, to make any deals like that. I said, well, that's a shame because, you know, you're costing your company a lot of money that, that I could give you today, tomorrow, and, and every international trip I take the next 30 years. But now I won't. Well, that, that's, um, an ex, uh, that's an excellent example. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny, we're talking about uh, customer service, but I saw... Uh, just last week, I was in Las Vegas for uh, Expo, and I saw a uh, uh, a new product which uh, enabled someone uh, someone who was a, a customer service rep. Uh, if it took the data from the caller in the caller's data about who or what who she was or he was, and then in in effect. Uh, tore up the script that was there, but gave them a different script uh, that came up on their screen based on the uh, uh, the caller's uh, background. 
Oh, I, I thought that was uh, a fascinating um, uh, departure from something I, I'd never seen before. But the interesting thing was uh, the toughest part of implementing it, they had told me, was the fact that it was giving a tremendous amount of power to the customer service, which is exactly what you say they should do. Well, yeah, the problem there, though, is that if you're just replacing one script with another, you're still not necessarily allowing the customer service employee to think for themselves. This customer service employee at Verizon wanted to help me, but was hand-tied because his manager would have docked him or fined him or simply did not give him permission to, to change my account in any way. So if the script that's coming up is just another series of statements they have to say and really isn't addressing the core issue, that's just as much of a problem. Right. The other challenge with systems like that, um, and very often, for instance, just by example, if you go to make a restaurant reservation in New York City, they will ask me for my cell phone number before they will even tell me whether there's a table at the restaurant, right? They're checking mm -hmm. my dining history at that restaurant or with that group which is really not a good indicator about whether they should give me that table or not. But they're clearly pulling up some sort of data or history on me, and so that's what that system is doing. Um, and what Peter and I maintain when in working with clients is that it's not the most influential consumer who, say, has the most followers on social media or who might have a better title that is going to be either the biggest advocate or detriment to your brand because the mom might tell 30 people at the PTA about the positive or negative experience, and those 30 shares will increase exponentially, and that could be equally as valuable. So a lot of companies are making mistakes in judging folks by either their followers or um, perceived level of influence when the average consumer has tremendous influence within their spheres. Oh, I find that fascinating. But let, let, me, let me go to the restaurant one and ask you this one, which is a particular bugaboo of mine. They won't seat you unless you have all your party there. Uh, you, have you ever run into that situation? And, oh, yeah. And well, that's a, that's a, restaurants will do that largely for the timing issue. So, in other words, they know you're going to take longer at the table if you're waiting for Bob, who might be 20 to 25 minutes late. So they may actually give you a different table and give the table to somebody who walks in later but party is complete. And that's a, that's a function of their ability to what they call turn the table. So in fine, fine dining, I, I ate in a two-star Michelin restaurant in Europe recently, that table was mine for the night. I had a 6.30 reservation. There was nobody after me. The bulk of American restaurants and, and particularly mid-level restaurants will actually try to turn a table anywhere between three to four, maybe even five times in a night. So that it's really a spacing issue. But, but agreed to the consumer, it seems like a tremendous inconvenience. What they should do, however, is show you to the bar and say, we, we're going to wait for you to have your whole party, but perhaps let us buy you a glass of Chardonnay while you wait. So you feel accommodated and are taken care of, and they can be making more money on the table rather than have it stalled. Well, see, that, that to me is a sensible solution. 
um, you know, uh, you're doing for me, I'm doing for you. It, it, it it's hospitality and and customer service, which I, uh, you started off this conversation with, which I think is one of the most fascinating statements I've heard on this show in a long time. Americans' expectations of good customer service is very low. I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, I find that a tremendously impactful uh, statement. Uh, and I just, I go through life almost uh, um, watching people making uh, what I consider dumb customer service decisions. And I just wonder, how did we reach that point? There's actually two two reasons we reached that point. The first reason was that back in the 50s, you know, when you take your car in to the gas station, Four people would come out. They'd run out. They'd be in really clean, press uniforms. One would check your oil. One would, would, would check your tires. One would fill your gas. One would wash your windshield. In the 70s and 80s, the econo- uh, economic – this is mind, it's also customer service really created itself in a post-war, World War, post-World War II uh, boom where, you know, it was all about uh, we are America, we do things better. Fast forward to the 70s and 80s, we had a very bad uh, – Massive debt crisis, massive economic fail, and something else happened at the same time. Both parents started working. In the 50s and 60s, husbands would go to work, and the wives would sit at home, get together at one person's house, and they'd knit socks, and they'd discuss. They'd go into what's called sewing circles, where they would discuss which place had, which butcher had the best cut of meat, which baker had the best bread, which supermarket had the best prices. And as that disappeared with two parents starting to work, the concept of go where your friends recommend was replaced by go where the person from the newspaper says to go or go where the movie critic tells you what to see. And with the, with the advent of social media, that's coming back. The concept of the sewing circle has moved online, and we are now expecting a higher level. of We still expect crap customer service, but when a higher level of customer service happens, it's very, very easy to share it because, as Rachel said, we all have phones in our cameras. So, or have, I'm sorry, I'll have cameras in our phone. So we can go and share that immediately, and we're so shocked by that. Think about the last time you were on a plane, and it took off on time, and you were actually upgraded. You know, how, how great was your day? But more than likely, you weren't upgraded. You were sat, and you were sitting in seat 34 bathrooms, and then your flight was three hours late as well. That's what we're used to. So we complain much as we're happy. So now that we can do that in real time, that's, where, that's why we, are, we believe that if we are able to change companies Views on customer service, we can increase their revenue anywhere from ten to forty percent. You know, you first. Go ahead. Well, I just I was just adding. There's data to support that. So there's a lot of different numbers out there, but um, but really, it's you know, consumers will tell 15 people about their good experiences, and they'll tell 24 people about their bad experiences. Our goal is to is to get those numbers certainly more in line, um, but to have less experiences well i have to tell you you use the example of the of the upgrade uh when i flew to las vegas last week i walked up to to the gate and they handed me a first class ticket um i have a million and a half miles with americans so i guess but but the surprise uh, it really made my trip it's i started the trip and you're absolutely right but that doesn't happen I guarantee it didn't happen on the way back, but but you're so right. I I, I couldn't let it pass. I, I, how you hit that example? Yep, absolutely. Well, and there's there are little things. So going back to 
helping your audience with things that they can do. Um, maybe an upgrade is at great cost, although, frankly, it's not at great cost if the seat is going to be empty anyway. Um, but there are more and more examples, and we're working with small and mid-sized and even large retailers to give spontaneous discounts, to give a free cup of coffee because you look like you're having a rough day, to let me give you 10% off of that. I can tell that your child in the stroller is screaming and you're, um, you're really in for a stressful day. Um, let us add a smile to your face and, and something nice for the day. And that little bit or some discount or a nice thing that's printed out on a receipt, that's going to get shared. If a mom is, you know, a kid screaming and somebody says, let me give you 10% off, your day is going to be really rough, I can tell, she's going to tell everyone she knows about that experience. And so particularly a small business without layers of bureaucracy really has that opportunity for spontaneity. And it's really that spontaneity that, that consumers will respond very well to. If every time you go in on a Tuesday, your car wash is 10% off, you expect to get it. But if just on a Thursday, because you look like you're having a rough day, that's something to share and people will talk about it and remember it. How can our uh, members of our audience reach the two of you? Sure. Our website is very simply Shankman Honig, which is Shankman, S-H-A-N-K-M-A-N-H-O-N-I-G.com. And I'm Peter at ShankmanHonig.com, and Rachel is Rachel at ShankmanHonig.com. Well, I, I, I want to invite you back on the program to continue this at some point in the future. And uh, when you have any new ideas, please let us know. Because it's been yeah, uh, for me. For me, it's been fascinating. Thank you so and much. Do you, have, do you have any last thoughts before before we go? I think the key really is for businesses. You know, again, we expect to be treated like, for lack of a better word, crap. Treat your customers one level above crap, and they will become loyal. Treat them a few levels, three or four levels above crap, to the point where it's actually good, and they'll become loyalists. Loyal customers come back. Loyalists bring 20 of their friends. Okay. Now, on that final note, we thank you both, Peter and Rachel, and uh, uh, come again. Thank you. Tell me. We will. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Well, that's, that's it for tonight for Small Business uh, Digest Radio. All of our guests are invited because they, they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our, our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week. Uh, th- and remember, if you have any ideas or thoughts, it's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. Uh, for any more information, smallbusinessdigest.net. From all of us, thank you and good night. <laughs>